Hello and welcome to Cannon and Cockrell. My name is Michael and I'm a Spurs fan. And I'm Jason and I'm an Arsenal fan. And uh, a lot's happened since we last spoke. I think the last time we did an episode, Spurs were top of the league, Arsenal were bottom, Nuno had just been manager of the month uh, and all was rosy. But since then, well, Spurs are still above Arsenal, but not at the top of the league, more sort of mid-table. And I think, am I, am I right in saying, Jason, that Mikel Arteta is now the holder of the, the manager of the month award, the, the poison yes. chalice? The lucky uh, manager of the month award. All the time I was criticising you and Spurs for it, and now I'm I'm waxing lyrical about Arteta's man management, his tactical style, and his uh, his visionary uh, strategy for the Arsenal. I suppose, as much as I want to forget it ever happened, I suppose we probably should talk about the North London derby. This being Cannon and Cockerell, oh, yeah. uh, a 3-1 win for Arsenal. I mean, obviously. Uh, I'm not, I'm not going to, you know, there's no skating around this. It was absolutely dreadful from the Spurs perspective. But I wonder, given the fact that a week later, uh, Arsenal drew to Brighton, we beat Villa, we went back above you. How much do you think, Jason, that win was just a one-off or just the usual? You know, Arsenal always beat Spurs at the Emirates. Not much to see here. And how much do you think it actually was a sign of things to come and, and maybe a bit of a power shift? No, I think that it was... I mean, it was made much better being on holiday during the game. It kind of, you know, I was next to a Greek man who clearly didn't know anything about football, didn't really want to watch it. Everyone watched me, everyone. There were like three people there uh, in the middle of the day, jumping up, going mental. I haven't gone that mad um, with Arsenal for years. It just felt, it wasn't just the fact that we're scoring against Tottenham. And I thought, okay, when, um, when that early goal Early goal? I mean, I can't remember the timings. Who was it? Was it Saka? Was Saka the first scorer? I think it was Smith-Rowe first and then Aubameyang and then Saka. Yeah, I think you're right that way. Um, and it was just it was just the fact that it was like a young player, like he'd been getting on some form. And then when Saka scored, it was like, oh my God, we're vindicated, we're doing something. And when Aubameyang scored, it was like, here we go. And it was the style in which we did it that was the best. That's just what made it ever so sweeter. It was like, we are thrashing Tottenham. We are destroying them. Everything, our vision of what we want to become has happened in 45 minutes. And it was just the most special 45 minutes ever. The fact that we didn't concede in the second 45 minutes. Sorry, we did. We still put in on. Why do I see it as 3-0 in my head? I don't know. Um, it, it felt like 3-0. Yeah. Even, even like, though it was a 3-1, it felt like a 3-0. It felt like a thrashing. And I think, again, that that is the blueprint of why Mikel Arteta is in charge. If a club can do that, they have the potential to do that. And, you know, we'll go back to it a bit later, but, you know, a nil-nil result against Brighton shows a different type of team. And again, not we're going to be champions, but winning teams have these challenges and they, they have these different types of games and results in the context of the season that they need to, to grind out. You know, keeping a clean sheet against a tough side who are actually fighting for the top four positions at the moment and been on form and other teams have struggled against them. You know, that that's that's not a disaster. But going back to the Spurs game, it kind of it went from, you know, back to front. It was Ramsdale's been sensational, making amazing saves again. I mean, there was one save where he tipped it over the bar. It was just, as some of the bloggers say, he had no right. Like, it's just a massive bonus. And that's what we weren't getting with Leno. Saying that he he was a good shot stopper, those special special moments we weren't getting him um, from him when it really mattered, 
and you know he's confident his distribu- distribution is another level on the kind of um on the kind of uh level of martinez tomiyasu kept everyone in his pocket you know he looked really good funny enough tierney's been quite quiet that's that's what's ironic um but it doesn't matter it's, it's a team effort now and you know, having that exciting, young, dynamic midfield in place and, and just the young attackers and Odegaard and Saka and Smith-Rowe, it was just so exciting to see a glimpse of what, what it could be if everything goes wrong, uh, right. And that's that's why I kept saying that I think we have good players and that a good manager would get amazing results out of this team. And I suppose going forward now, we have, after this international break, we've got three home games in a row. We've got Palace, Villa, and the Leeds in the Cup. Now, they need to be wins. We need to get on a real roll now and beat Patrick Vieira's Palace, you know, beat a Villa side who haven't been completely up to scratch this year. And then we're rolling. Because I'm telling you, this team has potential, and it would be a real shame if we can't take what were positive results. And I don't care what people say. Despite the performance, it happened. To get that result against Brighton at the Apex is is a good result in my opinion and the spurs game it was you know these derbies can go either way but i think it's the fact that there's kind of this crossroads of our form going up spurs form going down you thought you kind of had it again with that bit of result but i don't know it seems like there's a lot of unrest at spurs and i'd be interested to see from your perspective because from my perspective it was yes spurs were bad but arsenal was sensational and i wonder whether you'd overemphasise Spurs' badness? Or would you give Arsenal the credit I believe we deserve? Well, it's it's interesting that, uh, yeah, in crisis, Spurs are still above uh, resurgent Arsenal in the table as things stand, uh, which I think uh, shows where where the two clubs are at the moment. But no, I think definitely I, maybe this is my kind of Spurs goggles on, but I, I definitely saw it as more a case of Spurs being bad than Arsenal being good just because I thought we were so bad. I mean, that first 45 minutes is amongst the worst Spurs performances I think I've ever seen. And I mean, obviously, we we had contrasting emotions during that game. You saying it was kind of the most excited you've been watching Arsenal for a while. For me, it was the angriest I've been watching Tottenham for a long time. I mean, I was seething watching that first half because just from top to bottom, it was an absolute shambles it was a shambles tactically from Nuno straight off the bat and he admitted as much afterwards which okay you credit him for his honesty but you you're not sure what that really does for his authority amongst the players when he gets such a big tactical decision wrong in in such an important match I mean we basically had no midfield whatsoever I mean when you were counter-attacking there was just no resistance what you, you went from one end of the pitch to the other without uh, a, not so much as a Spurs player not putting a tackle in but a Spurs player not even being there, I mean, people uh, showed these screenshots afterwards from the match where literally the whole centre circle, the whole midfield, there wasn't a, a white shirt in sight. And you just wonder how, from a basic organisational level, how that can happen at, at this level of the game. But then on top of that, you did get the feeling like the players in that first half, and, and this is where I will give Arsenal credit, is in that first half, you were the team who played like it, it was a derby, who knew what the game meant you were the ones who who were working harder. And that's the thing. Not only did it seem like Nuno had been outthought, but the players were also being outfought. And that, particularly in a, in a game of that magnitude and, and that meaning for the fans, is unforgivable. But 
the reason why I, I say I think it was more a case of us being bad than, than you being good is because in the second half, even though we said it felt like 3-0, uh, min Sun scored, you know, Ramsdale, as you said, made a, made a great save from Lucas Moura. I think Kane missed a couple of sitters, I think should have had a penalty. You know, we came on, you know, okay, we were coming from a very low base and you, you already had the game won. Uh, but even still, as soon as we looked like a, a half-decent football team in that second half, we did actually start to create things and put you under a bit of pressure and you almost blew that three-goal lead. If you've been playing against a better team than us that day, then maybe you would have blown that three-goal lead. So, yeah. I, and also, you know, Arsenal, I, and I was saying this to you before the match, Spurs never win at the Emirates. I don't know what it is. Even under Pochettino, we only won there once, and that was in the, the cup. It wasn't in the league. In the league, we've only won at the Emirates once, and that was the Harry Redknapp coming from two goals down to win 3-2. So Arsenal always beat us at the Emirates, and it's always kind of painted, or at least in recent years, it's always been painted as a, a turning of the tables, like, you know, Unai Emery, the 4-2, the kind of a similar game in a way. Well, not no, not quite similar because that was more the second half Arsenal came on strong. We, we were actually all right in the first half of that game. But, you know, all the, all the talk afterwards of, oh, you know, this is Arsenal now on the up. I mean, maybe that will come to pass. And like you said, maybe the Brighton game, oddly, even though that was a draw, is maybe more evidence of Arsenal improvement than this game, just because you always beat us at the Emirates and we were that bad that I find I was afterwards, I was more worried about it from a Spurs point of view and being worried about us more so than I was worried about how good Arsenal are, because I just kind of feel like we were so bad that it was hard for me to to see Arsenal as being great. And I think the fact that, like I said, the second half, it changed a bit and more worried about us than I am worried about you, because I still feel like Arsenal are, a work in progress and aren't quite as good as we made you look. But that's not to say that I'm not very angry and worried about where we are, if that makes sense. I understand. I understand. I get you. I take on board your your <laughs> view. But yeah, I mean, it, listen, it's 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 two clubs on two different paths, and they, they've come together. And at the end of the day, the the, the team in red um, have come up on top. But I I mean. I wonder whether it's something to do with the maybe the manager. I don't know that it seems maybe there wasn't he doesn't quite get it or he's never been at that elite level. But I suppose you could argue Pochettino hadn't been as well. And sometimes you win some, you lose some. But it it feels like the writing on the wall is already there. I feel like the fans have turned on him quite quickly because I don't think we've seen any sort of peak Tottenham under him at all. Even when you were winning, I think, I mean, I remember seeing you get City. I don't think you were that great. I certainly heard the two games after that, you weren't, you know, the best team in the league. So what is the Nuno Espirito Santo identity? And can he get it together before he's inevitably sacked? And, you know, I mean, we'll come to it later, of course. We can't forget the the Newcastle deal, but there are teams out there who are going to be challenging for these tight spaces now. I mean, unbelievably, we've gone from top four to a top six to probably it's going to be a top eight soon. And I suppose clubs need to differentiate themselves in terms of their identity. And I think Arsenal are doing a good job of that. It's become very clear that they're going project youth and that, you know, is um, continued across through the management, the coaching staff, the players, 
um, bringing through players from the academy. That's certainly, you can see the strategy there. How long it works for, I don't know. If it works, I don't know. But at least it's there now. Whereas the Spurs, I don't know. It's clinging on to Harry Kane, a player who doesn't want to be there, who now is arguably one of the weakest strikers in the league. Yeah, and I, I do think it was um, notable in, in, in the derby how Arteta was jumping around, shouting out instructions, you know, right on the edge of the touchline. He felt involved, whereas every time it cut to Nuno, he was stood there, arms folded, not saying anything, looking a little bit confused, a little bit embarrassed, maybe even a little bit scared. And you just thought, you know, where's the... Where's that inspiration coming from? Where's, you know, maybe he's a he's a different guy behind closed doors, but his communication with with the media is very uh, reserved. And you wonder, you know, if that if if what he's like with his, you know, if what he's like on the touchline, what he's like when he's speaking to the press, is what he's like with the players, then you you can imagine them being rather uninspired. And it's interesting. I actually was reading on the Athletic earlier that apparently one of the reasons why Arsenal didn't consider Nuno for the Arsenal job was over his kind of media persona and his sort of handling of the press and them thinking that maybe he wasn't kind of charismatic enough. And I, I do worry with Nuno whether, you know, I think if we had lost that, that, that Aston Villa game really did feel like he was fighting to save his job. And to be fair, we we were good against Villa. But I think if we had lost that game, I genuinely think over this international break, he might have been sacked because you had, you know, 3-0 loss to Palace, 3-0 loss to Chelsea, 3-1 loss to Arsenal. You know, you, you can't lose three London derbies on the bounce, conceding three goals in each of them and expect that to be okay. And I mean, for each game, you could go, oh, well, there's mitigating factors. You know, the Palace game, it was just after the international break and we'd lost all those players. And, you know, Chelsea, we played well in the first half and uh, they are the champions of Europe and, you know, might go and win the league. The Arsenal game, we've already spoke about. But at the end of the day, those results are, are damning. And like you said, the, the performances. You know, some people might say it's, it's crazy. Why are you to, to doubt Nuno when he he won his first three games and was manager of the month, like we said earlier. But those three wins, those three one nils, you kind of accepted those performances at the time because you you thought it was building towards something. You thought, OK, he's got us tight at the back and the goals will come when, when Kane's back into the team and he's had more time to work. But instead, all that's happened is the bottom's fallen out of the defence and we're still not scoring goals. So we've got the, the worst of both worlds. And, and on the Kane point, I mean, it's hard to get away from the the feeling that the team has gotten worse since Harry Kane was reintegrated. And I, I saw a thing, this would have been before the Aston Villa game, where someone said, oh, if you take the kind of results since the transfer window closed, Spurs would be bottom. And you wonder whether having players, and it's not just Harry Kane, like players like Tanguy and Dombele, um, who wanted to go, ended up staying. Players like Harry Winks, who I think the club wanted to go, but he ended up staying. You just wonder whether there's still a lot of players in that dressing room who aren't happy or don't really want to be there and whether that's kind of affecting the the morale and the togetherness. And I feel like Nuno had done well to get out a, a, a first 11 for those first three games with a specific plan to win those matches. But then once he had to deal then with the whole squad and try and integrate all these different players, it seems like he hasn't quite been sure how to do that and what his best team is and how to get the best out of everyone and how to get kind of everyone on the same page. And I feel like maybe I feel sorry for him in the sense that the Villa game did feel like we turned a corner and that, okay, we've got our momentum back. We've changed the feeling. And maybe now he's gone from the four, three, three to a four, two, three, one. And okay, maybe he's finally cracked it. And then it's another international break and we've lost our momentum. 
And now when we come back, we're going to be missing the South Americans again. And of course, Tottenham would be the first team that Newcastle get to play at home post takeover. That was and what, may, so. maybe a new manager bounce as well. So you think, OK, we're probably definitely going to lose that. Then I think we've got West Ham away, which we always lose. <laughs> and then we, I think our next home match in the league is Manchester United. And you can, you can easily foresee a situation where we go another three games on the bounce, losing them. And if that happens again, then I feel like his position does become untenable, even at this early stage, because it just... And, and the fact that he's only on a two-year contract as well, I feel like makes these poor runs of form even more damaging for him. Because if it was a manager who, you know, like someone like Arteta, who where it was clear, like, okay, this is a project we're building towards the future. But with Nuno, we know he's only on a two-year contract. There's all these rumours about if he doesn't finish top six in his first season, they can let him go without compensation. Like, it's clear that he's here as a, a stopgap. So it's not like when we lose badly, you can go, okay, yeah, but keep the faith. There's a process. This is just part of the the pain you go through when you're, because we he, he's not going to be here long. So it's like, well, what, what are we persevering with? There's nothing to persevere with if, if this isn't the project, if he's just here for the short term. If he's just here for the short term, then he'll be judged by short-term results. And bar that Villa game the, and those, first, you know, the, the start of the season, the, the results in the short term haven't been great. So I feel like that makes the pressure on him you know, even higher as well, because those defeats don't, it's not like they have a, a longer term purpose or point to them. It's, you know, you are going to judge him game by game, result by result. So every match for Nuno now does feel huge because every defeat is just going to open up all the doubts that people had about him in the first place, about him not being first choice. And certainly if Newcastle go and hire a very exciting manager who Spurs fans will be thinking, well, why didn't we hire them? and then they start flying up the table, then, yeah, of course, that's going to put even more pressure on him and, and the club as well. Mm. And you wonder what, what his plan was all along, because I believe he said he was leaving Wolves before the end of the season, and Spurs apparently probably went through seven or eight managers before they spoke to him. So what was his plan? Did he think he was, I don't know, going to move back home or go to a smaller club for a project or, you know, because he stagnated at Wolves? And that's what's really interesting. It's this identity piece of, and and it kind of links to that point we've spoken about off air briefly about um, about the questions from the fans forum or whatever it is, the supporters group. You know, what is our identity? What do we want to be known for as Spurs? Can you tell us? And and it doesn't sound like you know we had it today. You know, it's it's it kind of Edu and did an interview. Perma did an interview. Arteta's kind of been briefing it, and we've kind of now. The fans get it. We know we have to be patient uh, and we get this project youth. But for Spurs, do you think that's sort of the problem as well? The, the hierarchy or the club itself has not made it clear, OK, this is why we've brought in Nuno and this is why we've kept Harry Kane. Obviously, you know, why, but but you kind of want to know where, where it's going because you've brought in some of these exciting young players. It doesn't sound like they're getting all the minutes on the pitch either. So it's it's neither here nor there, I suppose. Do you, do you think that's part of the problem as well from a fan's perspective? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we kind of spoke about it a bit when Nuno was appointed in that I think in a way Daniel Levy dug a bit of a, you know, put himself in a bit of a corner when at the start of the, the summer he talked about the Spurs DNA and we're going to hire someone to, to bring back the Spurs DNA of attacking football. And, and as soon as you do that, you you set a bit of a, a benchmark by which the, the next manager is going to be judged by and by which kind of everything you do is then going to be judged because 
fans will say, well, you know, how, how are you interpreting Spurs DNA and, and where's the kind of proof that, that that's what you're doing? And I think what a lot, I think what a lot of fans are frustrated by at the moment is the sense that the, the priorities of the, the club aren't football. So I think it was the night before the North London Derby, there was the Anthony Joshua boxing fight at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. That was on the Saturday night. The North London Derby was on the Sunday afternoon. And I feel like a lot of fans probably felt like that for those at the very top of the club, Saturday night was more important to them than Sunday afternoon. And we've had the NFL this past weekend. And again, I feel like there's a sense amongst the fan base that those at the top of the club care more about the American football matches coming into the stadium than they do about how well the football team's doing. Now, you know, of, of course, they obviously will care about the football team, but it seems like the focus has been on the stadium and on the stadium hosting events. And that's all well and good if in the long run, that money that you've generated from those events is going to be invested into the team to try and make them competitive. But I think the the problem you still have, and kind of Pochettino uh, spoke about it right at the beginning when we opened the stadium, when he said, you know, it's all well and good having a lovely house, but you've then got to fill it with the best furniture. And I think mm-hmm. the fact of the matter is we've got, we've got the stadium, we've got the facilities, but it feels like the ambition almost stops there. And, and, and okay, to, you know, to be fair to them again, there was a pandemic, there's, there was lockdown, they didn't have the chance to make as much money from the stadium by this point, as I'm sure they would have originally planned to. But there is that sense like, are we even going to see the, the benefits of this stadium? Is it going to be invested into the squad? And, and where is the focus of the people at the top of the club? Is it in, okay, what, who are our transfer targets for, for next summer? What's long-term strategy here? Or is the, their main focus and concern, okay, what's the next concert we can get at the stadium? What's the next big event we can get at the stadium? Um, so I think that's where the, the fans' frustration is at the moment, is that it seems like we're Tottenham Hotspur Stadium more than we are Tottenham Hotspur FC. Um, maybe in the long run, that will prove to be kind of a, a silly thing to be worried about, because maybe the stadium will end up paying off for us. But particularly when you, like you said, look at what hap- has happened at places like Newcastle. It's like, is you know, and, you know, Arsenal kind of made that bet, didn't you? You, you built the Emirates thinking this will be what takes us on to the next level, but it didn't really work out like that. So I guess people just want to see that there is a plan and a strategy. And I guess bringing in someone like Fabio Paratici was meant to kind of point towards that, but I don't have a lot of confidence in him, to be honest. And actually, that's the thing that would make me worried about us sacking Nuno is, I don't have any confidence in Fabio Paratici picking the next manager, given that the, the manager hunt got worse when he came in. Mm. That was when that was when we, we went into the whole uh, Fonseca Gattuso mess. You know, before that, at least some of the candidates we were looking at, you might have thought, mm, you know, a bit unrealistic, but at least they they sort of made sense and were exciting and kind of fit the club. But when he came in, it was like he thought he was still in Italy or at Juventus and could hire any Italian manager and it would be fine. Mm, but um, you wish you'd uh, gone for Graham Potter now, huh? Well, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and that's the thing. I think a lot, you know, again, a lot of fans looking at Brighton, looking at how well Graham Potter's doing and thinking, yeah, you know, did did we hire the right guy? And with Nuno, I do wonder whether, you know, I'm not sure it was necessarily in his plan to come to Spurs. I think it was a kind of once he was offered it, maybe he thought it was too good to turn down. And, and for the for the club, he was someone who was interested and a free and cheap and Premier League experience to come in at that moment in time after we'd burnt our bridges with everyone else. But I do wonder whether, like you said, he stagnated at the end at Wolves. And when I watch him at Spurs, sometimes, particularly when, you know, during that Arsenal game, like I said, I think, did he need a rest 
between Wolves and Spurs. You know, he had a bad last season at Wolves and then basically went straight into the Spurs job. And it's like, has he really had the time to reflect and recharge and rest? Or is he still himself feeling a bit mentally, emotionally kind of fatigued? And is he kind of fully sharp like he needs to be? And, you know, did he need a bit of a sabbatical between those jobs? And has he maybe taken this job a bit too soon? And is maybe that kind of what's playing into it? I don't know, but you know, who knows? We 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 could beat Newcastle because they are still uh, a relegation-threatened team as things stand. Yeah, they'll have the big bounce from the takeover, but we could still beat them. We're, we're playing West Ham, I think, after a Europa League Thursday, and they seem to be struggling with that at the moment. They lost to Brentford at home after a Thursday night Europa League game, so we could easily win those two games. You know, Man United uh, inconsistent under Solskjaer. That would be at home. We beat City at home. Who knows? You know, he could go on a run. You never know. The, the Villa game might have been the, the turning point. Um, and obviously, I hope he does well. But like you said, it does seem already like the writing's on the wall a bit. But but maybe it was to begin with by the nature of how he was appointed and, and that two-year contract. So I, I'd be very surprised if he is still... I, I, I still feel like the club is hoping that, that PSG sack Pochettino. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And, and that they can then um, get rid of Nuno and bring him in. And to be honest, I I feel like that's the if there is a plan at the club, I feel like that's probably as far as it goes to them hoping Poch becomes available by the summer, and that they can mm-hmm. sweep in for him then and and have the reunion that they always wanted, and kind of fix that mistake that they made a few seasons ago by by sacking him. But then whether bringing Poch back is the right thing or not will then be another conversation. But I, I certainly feel like that's the kind of unspoken wish from everyone at the club at the back of their their minds that maybe come December or January, if things aren't going well for PSG, Poch will be back on the market and they can do what they, they wanted to in the summer. You won't be the only ones, though. I mean, I'm sure it's a, it's a, it's a race against who sacks their manager first, because I reckon United... You know, I know they gave Solskjaer that contract, but that felt almost like a bit of loyalty for their ex-player to say, listen, you know what, like, we know you're unsettled by just having a one-year contract. Let's give you another contract. Ultimately, if you're not performing with the money we've given you, the players, you're out. And I wouldn't be surprised if if that happened quicker. I wouldn't be surprised if Pochettino thought, you know, if he's weighing up, yes, it's romantic to go back to Spurs, but United's another level, let's be honest. You know, the, the, the calibre of players, the history. And although he might have done that at PSG, PSG is a, I see it as a fake project, to be honest. It's a kind of a Real Madrid Galacticos that isn't working. Whereas at least Man United, apart from when they went to Ronaldo, the pieces of the puzzle kind of made a little bit of sense. Although, uh, you know, someone like Sancho hasn't quite settled in as, as well. And they have been having injury troubles. But I just feel like I see that more but again it's it's all speculation and it's quite funny i saw finesca was linked to the newcastle job that wouldn't it be funny if he uh he got the newcastle job and in three years he he was like the mancini who won the league and well is that uh, a, you know butter the jokes again yeah and that's the other thing about i mean obviously you know who knows he could be kind of spinning this for his own his own benefit but there was the, the interview with fonseca in the telegraph i think it was where he basically said he had an agreement with the club and then it was paratici who vetoed it essentially because he wanted more defensive football which if that's true obviously it runs completely counter to what Levy said about Spurs DNA and attacking football and I think that's the the thing again why fans are are wanting clarity because it feels like you had a a chairman who said one thing 
but then hired a sporting director who appears to want another thing and then bringing in a manager who you know some people say he's another Mourinho others say he's he's a bit more attacking than that but who again has only been brought in on a two-year contract and so doesn't seem to be much of a long-term plan there so it's like you know what what actually is the identity that we're striving for and what is the long-term plan it you know the whole Fonseca situation kind of kind of shows that and yeah it wouldn't surprise me if Newcastle I mean even some of the other managers uh, Newcastle have been linked to now um right Ragnick and Lucien Favre you know Brendan Rodgers earlier today now been ruled out but still one of the favorites you know these are all managers who Spurs were kind of linked to in the summer and you just know that they're going to hire a man or even Eddie Howe you know you know they'll hire somebody who we could have had and then we'll be left one you know wishing we got them instead it's just uh you know you can see it coming a mile off as Chiellini says, it's the history of Tottenham. And that's, that's I think, what the next manager, or the long-term manager needs to do is, is put that to bed. And I thought that would have been Jose, you know, winning you that trophy and uh, a bigger trophy and, um, and moving you forward. So it's, you know, from the outside, it's precarious times for Tottenham. And that's why I say that I'd rather be an Arsenal fan than Spurs fan now, because I really feel that we're on an upward trajectory and, you know, we're spending the money to prove it as well. On, on what people might call not big players, but I damn well think that one of those guys that we've brought in will be. And already, you know, Saka and Smith row together are probably making us around 100 million from zero. So, uh, you know, it, it might be funny enough. I mean, changing the subject a bit, there has been rumours about Saka and you wonder whether for the club system to work, they might have to get rid of him and say, you know what, someone take him for 60 million, we reinvest, we bring in Martinelli through the ranks a bit more and, and we kind of reinvest in the team. And that's it's kind of kind of what Liverpool did on, on a minor scale. I mean, they, they cashed in on the best player and that future-proofed the club, but they also sold these high potential talents, you know, who could have been good, but they, they took that risk and had that money to reinvest. And ultimately, I think that's what Arsenal could and probably should do. And I know that sounds a bit defeatist, but I think we're in a place now where these good, very good players are going to want to play European football. Um, and if we don't have it, you can't blame them for leaving. But I'd rather cash in and reinvest in strong players now for where we need it and just keep the churn and the system going because, you know, it doesn't help if you bring through a few hail enders, but then they block the path for, for six years for everyone on there. You know, it needs to be this churn of talent that makes us money and ultimately improves us as a team to take us to the next level. Yeah, I think, I mean, and that's somewhere where Arsenal potentially could learn from Tottenham's mistakes because, I mean, who knows, maybe he will and be the player that he used to be, but arguably Spurs are paying the price for not selling Deli Alley two or three years ago. Um, mm. Similarly, Eric Dyer. I mean, there was a summer where Manchester United was supposedly interested in Eric Dyer and we could have sold him for 50 million or something. I mean, mm. You look back now and you think, yeah, we should have sold Delhi, we should have sold Dyer. Even at a point, we should have sold Ericsson because then we maybe we would have had the money in the bank and we could have gone out and signed the Bruno Fernandez. You know, s- selling at the right time is just as important as buying. And obviously, it kind of, in a way, it runs counter to what you think you should be doing because it used to be that if you're an ambitious club, you keep your best players. You don't you don't want to be a selling club. But like you said, Liverpool and, and other clubs as well have shown actually, if you sell it at the you know the the right time at the right price and then you have the the pipeline coming through and your recruitment's good enough that you know that's that's the best way to do it you know sell at the when they're at their kind of peak value 
and then bring through the next one who you can, you know, that's how you can be sustainable. And, and that's, I guess, the only way you can kind of compete with those clubs that have unlimited resources and maybe don't necessarily need to worry as much about how much they make from player sales because they know they've, they've got the money coming through regardless. Yeah. Yeah. But these are all, you know, different strategies that may work. And I think they, they have to work for clubs who haven't got this ability to spend whatever they want, you know, like a Chelsea who will, will sell for 10 million and buy that for 90 million. You know, we have to find a different way to win, I suppose. And this is going to become harder and harder and harder. And I don't know whether, you know, do clubs like us become leads and go down and come up? I mean, it probably could happen now. If, if, if this trend continues, there's going to be too many good teams in the Premier League to compete. And if, you, if you're not joining them, then, then you're going to be left behind. Yeah, and that's the thing with, you know, obviously we've, we've mentioned the Newcastle takeover a lot, this podcast already, without actually talking about it outright. But that's the thing I wonder about with this is, you know, they probably will with the money they've got if they spend it wisely, win the league within the next five, 10 years. We saw it happen with Chelsea. We saw it happen with City. But on the other hand, I do wonder whether actually this might not be as successful as people think because we've already got, like you said, a top four kind of became a big six. And when Chelsea were taken over, okay, you had United and Arsenal who were the kind of established powers then, but you didn't have City who who are now power. And then when even when City were taken over, but now that you've got you've already got City and Chelsea plus the likes of United and Liverpool who are, who are still have that kind of history and heritage and and all the commercial revenue they made over the years that there's not as much room to break into as there was before and if there was already that tension of kind of six top six clubs into four Champions League places doesn't go and you you know obviously you've got contenders like Leicester and uh, West Ham and Everton knocking on the door as well these were the kind of tensions which led to the clubs wanting to form the Super League because not everyone could get a piece of the pie. And you just wonder whether with Newcastle, are they actually going to be as successful as people think? Because there's, there's already people with lots of, you know, lots of money, not as much money as them, but still lots of money in Chelsea and City, plus the, the established powerhouses. Or, and, or if Newcastle are successful and do dislodge a City or a Chelsea or a United Liverpool from the Champions League on a regular basis then are we not going to see a revival of the Super League thing? Because there's just too many rich super clubs and too few chances for them to be at the kind of top table of European football. Yeah, I mean, unless they expand the Champions League and give us eight spaces because we'll have that many good teams. Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing. It's like, I can't remember who it was, but I was listening to something where they said, you know, even a club like Aston Villa, right, who don't quite, you know, in a way, a lot of Premier League clubs would probably do quite well in the Champions League, but they don't have a chance to get into it because there's the four spaces. But I'm trying to think of which European club I can mention here that it wouldn't be harsh on them. But, you know, there's certain clubs in the Champions League group stages who you think, oh, yeah, you know, Everton and Villa, West Ham could probably beat them. But they don't get but they don't get that chance because of the nature of the Premier League, whereas other leagues, which are maybe a bit weaker and, and these clubs can get through, it's like, yeah, you, you could have if Newcastle end up being as good as everyone thinks they'll be, you know, seven, eight teams in the Premier League who could all compete in the Champions League, but only half of them will be there. Or you create a more of a, you, you kind of change it up and make it a qualification so that there can be shock results like an FA Cup or League Cup, and you can have surprise teams that change it up rather than this this top four that will naturally be 
over over average amount of seasons will be the same because of the big squads. You know, they can chop and change. They'll have that fitness. They'll have that level. They'll have the money to keep on buying. I wonder whether there's another way. And I think it will come. I, I can't see it staying like this forever because the Super League was just just a start, in my opinion. And the fact that didn't didn't the case get thrown out in court? And it means that whoever was still part of it still have some sort of case. I don't I don't quite know what's going on at the moment. Imagine if the the I think this idea has been suggested before, but imagine if the Premier League did. Uh, kind of similar to the championships, like a first place and second place get automatic Champions League qualification, mm. but then you have you have playoffs, yeah, so like third to eighth or whatever, and you have playoffs for the champion for that the final Champions League spots. I think that would work. I mean, I think if it was equal for everyone, it would be fair game. I don't, I don't see why. I mean, I always thought the Champions League should be the champions, and that's it, and it makes it really elite. And then maybe you can have a secondary tournament that's just like, okay, everyone gets to experience Europe. You need to get to that top point if you want to, if you want a chance. Um, but there is obviously the risk of that being basically the Super League. Um, I don't know. I like that idea. You should probably suggest it. Put it in the put it in the box. Yeah, because I mean, people might say, well, it's unfair. You know, you finish third and you lose a Champions League spot to a team that finishes eighth. But it's no different in the Championship than a team who finishes third and then they end up not winning the playoffs and some team who squeaked in do it. I mean, the championship playoff final, they say, is the richest game in football because mm. of how much it's worth being in the Premier League. But they do playoffs for that. So, I mean, I don't know, maybe there's some UEFA rule where they, they won't let you do that. But I think it would be probably more exciting and would potentially be a way to resolve that tension of their... I mean, at the end of the day, you've still the same number of clubs going to the Champions League, but it might give these clubs more of a reassurance that they have more chance of getting in than otherwise. But I mean, probably what's going to happen is that they'll bring in, I mean, with these Champions League reforms, they're going to bring in, they'll, the Champions League will end up becoming a Super League by stealth. They'll end up being a selection of clubs who get Champions League qualification every year, regardless of league position or something like that. I mean, they're basically already going to do that, I think, with the, like the UEFA coefficient. So teams who finish outside the qualification, but who are high in their UEFA coefficient or whatever, will still be able to qualify for the champ, you know, some sort of thing like that. So there's a mockery, isn't it? Yeah. At the end of the day, the Super League it may have died, but it is still very much alive. Yeah. And at the end of the day, people like when things stay the same, the, the fear, there's this fear of change, I'm sure, in the traditional structures. But ultimately, I mean, I finished that program that you recommended Fever Pitch on BBC iPlayer about... Um, the rise of the Premier League, and ultimately, if that could happen, <laughs> we're a lot more advanced now. Why can't something else happen? And maybe longer term, we'll be happy for it. I don't know. Yeah, so anything Newcastle takeover makes it far more likely that something like that will will come back again and happen within the next however many years. Because yeah, it it just makes that sort of fundamental tension even worse that there's too many super rich clubs who don't have the the guarantees of success that they would like given their investment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can see why the other Premier League, I mean, there's many reasons why uh, p- people could be angry about the takeover, but I can see wh- why other Premier League clubs were concerned about it. Although you could say they only have themselves to blame because this is the environment they've Created. I do think it's a little bit unfair that Daniel Levy has kind of been singled out as a sort of mm-hmm. ringleader of the opposition to this, considering that 
Spurs Newcastle is the next match. I'm not sure that's coincidence. I think there's something a bit dodgy about that. And I think it's kind of a bit mad that he, in some quarters of the media, has been made out to be the villain of, the, of this piece. Um, so, yeah, that whole thing. And I, I just want to say as well, in Steve Bruce's defence, I looked it up. Newcastle finished 12th last season. That's only one place below Aston Villa. Mm-hmm. I know the football wasn't incredible, but the way people talk about him now as if he's, you know, he's... Benitez did not play sparkling football at Newcastle either. They were both doing the best with what they had available to them. And I think it's a little bit unfair. The way I mean, I'm sure by the time this podcast is out, he will have been probably have been sacked. Um, and I'm not just saying this because I don't want us to fall victim to a new manager bounce at the weekend. But I do think the whole way Steve Bruce has been treated during this as well has been a little bit unfair. Yeah. And ultimately, he's going to get £8 million for his trouble. I don't know why he's bothered staying, but I think he's... He's just been waiting for that sack, really, um, for a long time. And ultimately, to rebuild his reputation is going to take a lot now. But I think it's been a toxic club for a while. And I think they need a fresh, everyone needs a fresh start involved. And um, I think we'll see it pretty quickly. I think in, I'm surprised they didn't just go for it with a new manager quickly because now it's all going to be very tight before that Spurs game. Um, but it's going to be really interesting. I reckon in January, you know, there's, there's rumors of Coutinho and, uh, Barler and um, who was the other one? Uh, someone at Juve, uh, PSG, Icardi, Alabama Yang, <laughs> Lacazette. They can take Pepe if they want for 80 mil. I saw, I, I've, I've even seen rumors about Deli Ali and Harry Kane as well. I mean, Harry Kane is that would be that's just not true, but none of that is true, let's be honest. But I had, I had. Actually, I won't say these. I won't. I won't speculate on uh, on national on national radio. Um, but I guess yeah. On a on a on, on a positive note, aside from Newcastle, Spurs are all uh, new. No time to die, and uh, Arsenal are all uh, the names Arteta, Mikel Arteta. That seems like a, a good and a topical place to to close. I just wanted to get that title then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>